Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will shape politics in the future. I'm a nervous presenter this week because I've asked a former GCHQ staffer to take a look at my online footprint as part of a conversation we're going to have about how cybersecurity is going to affect people on a day-to-day basis in the years to come. Cameron Colquhoun now runs the ethical open source intelligence agency Neon Century and joins me here in the studio. Cameron? Welcome to the studio. Thank you. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Uh, yeah, my name is Cameron Colquhoun. Um, I'm a former GCHQ analyst. Uh, I was there for about eight years, and I now run a London-based ethical intelligence business called Neon Century. Cameron, rather than ask you about James Bond and uh, <laughs> Bourne and people like that, I'm just interested to know when you first kind of became interested in the idea of working in the intelligence services. I wonder, I was thinking about this the other day, someone asked me the same question, and uh, I remember when I was younger, um, my dad worked for what was then BA Systems, um, I think in the good old years, uh, and uh, he would bring home the Jane's Intelligence Review and the Jane's Fighter Jet magazine uh, week after week, and I would sit there and read that a lot as a youngster, and I was we would go to air shows, and I was always obsessed with things like that. I originally wanted to be a fighter pilot, um, but somehow, for some reason, I ended up doing international relations at university, and... Um, yeah, always felt interested in world affairs, uh, geopolitics, international relations, and um, wasn't massively motivated by money. Money when I was young, uh, and just felt you know something like the Foreign Office or one of its associated agencies would be a, a fun place to work. And is that something that uh, you go and find, or is it something that comes and find, comes and finds you? Uh, I think well, because I applied in two thousand six. So I put myself under pressure by doing a master's degree as well and taking out a student loan. So I had to find a job um, and I was just going online. And I remember a friend telling me that GCHQ were recruiting and um, I thought, well, why not have a crack at that and see, see if we get in. Um, I thought about doing things like Sandhurst, uh, the foreign office as well. So I suppose it was just a case of apply all and, and see which ones come back. And so your work now with Neon Century, your own company, yeah. am I right in describing it as looking at how you use big data? Uh, for security purposes, is that the fair description? Yes, yeah, so most of our clients tend to be businesses and those businesses have risks around the world. So maybe they're investing in a Brazilian supermarket business or they're an Indian railway company and they don't understand what the risks are around that business. And there's actually a lot you can tell someone from open data if you know where to look and how to an- analyze that in an objective way. So 
clients come to us to talk, to ask us about difficult questions, usually abroad, that they can't answer themselves. So I've said in the past that I'm quite relaxed about uh, what data is out there about me and people finding out data about me, which we will test in a moment. But um, for now, can you give me just a kind of uh, a sketch of the kind of data that individuals produce and, and leave, a, leave as a kind of breadcrumb trail on the internet? I mean, if you think about it, most people will leave, will, will spend seven, eight hours a day online. So all of that time, they're clicking on different IP addresses, they're going to different websites, they're using different apps. And all of these services are really, you know, draining your data and monitoring where you're going. Um, I remember the quote, I'm not sure who by, that the, the primary mod business model of the internet is surveillance. And if you think about that from any company that sets up a an online presence, one of the things they want to do is capture your data. So everything about where you've been, how long you've been on any web page, where your mouse hovers, um, where you are in the world, particularly with smartphones, which are you know the best devices in the world for tracking people, um, it's it's scary. And I think when most of the public really add up and join the dots as to how much other web companies know about them, it can be it can be frightening. And I spent most of the weekend quite nervous, knowing that you were taking a look at my internet footprint. Um, and having had a look at the report that you've created, I was quite relaxed till halfway through when I realized that actually you'd been able to discover things that if somebody was trying to cause me a problem or make me feel insecure, they could use that very easily to interfere with my world very rapidly. Um, is that the case for most of us? Yes. I mean, it's interesting because when we conduct our investigations from a business point of view, sometimes we may well be asked to look at chairmen, you know, older guys who are 50, 60, 70. And obviously they don't have a huge online footprint, but certainly for the people our age and the younger generation who've grown up online, there's just an enormous data trail. Um, and often people don't realize that they're broadcasting to the world. And I think my sense was that it would be you know, the things that would be a problem to be online are kind of juvenile misdemeanors and embarrassing photos and kind of maybe the odd indiscretion here or there or something you wouldn't want your colleagues to know about today. But actually, it might well be that the things that are online about you are very innocent until somebody is thinking about using them for a less than innocent purpose. Yeah, you know, in a way, if you look at the internet through the eyes of or pretend to be a criminal and think if I was actually going to try and rob somebody or work out where they are, or where their brother lives, I could, again, if I spend enough time online, everybody makes it easy for, for, for criminals and terrorists and everybody else to, to find out information about them. A good, simple example of this is robberies. So rich people go on holidays, they'll put things on Instagram and on Facebook and then, you know, burglars may well see and follow rich people online and then go, OK, well, they're away abroad. Now's the time to go and you know to go and strike. So all the time we're giving away our lives to the internet, and it's once that's out there, it's a bit like having a tattoo. It's very hard to to delete. We're talking today about cyber security and trying to look as ever on government versus the robots at how um, new technologies will affect politics in the future, particularly. But when you think about cyber security and big data, some of the actors you think about are the government in terms of how does can the government use that. The security services, in terms of how do the security services have to interact with data, and the private sector, big companies as well. Presumably, all three of those actors are kind of heavily involved in the use of and understanding of big data. Yeah, in different ways. So I think if you think about individuals, we as individuals, we produce data. Okay, we leave a data trail everywhere. And to varying degrees, governments are interested to know where we are for the purposes of planning, everything from time planning to healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. And then you've got the web service companies themselves. And it's a good way to think about the web and that if it's for free, you're the product. 
So if you use free webmail services, free social networks, that's because they're making money out of you know out of your data. So there's this interesting game going going on where we're producing all of this data, and it's largely being harvested by private companies and governments in this kind of strange position of really needing some of the data that private companies hold to make smart decisions about the future of this country. And I'm not sure where we're at in that debate, but it's an interesting one because ultimately, you know, more data is useful for, for, for government purposes. And it feels to me that a lot of the analysis of big data that goes on is kind of, it goes on behind closed doors for different reasons, you know, corporate reasons, national security reasons, but there's a kind of, you know, a whole world of information out there that people have that doesn't really ever see the light of day and in the kind of collective consciousness and then occasionally things trip over so i i was browsing twitter last week and there was a story about the app strava that had somehow revealed the kind of positions of previously covert us air bases i think are there other examples of that sort of thing going on i mean all the time there are you know when people use the web when people use web services they don't often think through the security implications at the end of the day these people are giving data away to a, you know, giant businesses who can then post them online. Um, one strange thing that is uh, is happening now is with Google image search. So you can search in Google now using an image. The facial recognition is so good that if I have your picture, I can then use that picture, one picture of you, and see where else in the web you may well appear, other photos of you on the web, so to speak. So it's almost like a facial search engine. Uh, there is an app in Russia called FindFace that indexes the Russian version of Facebook called VContact. And what this means is you can walk around the street in Russia with your camera mode activated and using the camera, it will, oh, that's Jonathan Tanner. He lives at this address uh, and pairs it to your VContact profile. It's almost like in an augmented reality fashion, mm. if you follow me. So what this means really is if you think about in somewhere like Russia, um, that means kind of privacy is dead in, in public. There's no more privacy left because anyone can walk around on the street and say, oh, look, there's Jonathan Tanner. I've never met him before, but he runs this government versus the robots uh, podcast and X, Y, and Z. So that's kind of where some things are going. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize when, as I say, when they use apps mm. like Strava or they're putting stuff on Instagram, that it's there forever, ultimately. It feels like I say a lot, oh, this is terrifying. But the fact is, it's also happening. I wonder if you, with the different background, kind of still feel that often you see things that have terrifying possibilities or do you just kind of see them as possibilities that are happening and therefore you have to deal with them pragmatically? I think the facial recognition thing is especially concerning and it was the one technology that Eric Schmidt, the, the chairman of Google, said they stopped developing. They deliberately said we are not going to keep developing this. But that doesn't stop someone else from doing so. So I think that for me is a terrifying example of where, again, unregulated, we don't really have any kind of you know, digital privacy code, so to speak, and who owns your face? Is it you? Is it Facebook? Is it Instagram or Google or somebody else? And we're not really at that point yet. Um, I was interesting. There's um people experimenting with anti-facial um, recognition technology by wearing glasses, changing your hairstyle, that type of thing. So it all sounds very Blade Runner. But these technologies are here, and they're they're you know they're in force, and police are, can apply them to CCTV. Um, other strange technologies that anything that tracks you 24 7 is also really concerning and most apps are are beaconing your location um a lot of people don't realize that most games that are all these games that candy crush etc etc 
the reason many of them exist and are free is because what they're selling is your data. They're selling you adverts and they're selling your data to other people. So they're almost like tracking devices, if you will. So um, is that concerning? Not necessarily. I think we'll get onto the political side of things. Um, but I individually speaking, the more apps you use, the more data you're giving to other people. Starting to think a little bit more politically, to what degree should we be thinking about some sort of coordinated effort to use data to manipulate our politics? I think data is already being used to manipulate politics. If you think back to, I think it was, was it New Labour in the 1990s that they, you know, were really good at the survey questionnaire or neighbourhoods and able to put that data into algorithms and work out where, you know, what districts to target. Um, but now, because of open data, we've made this process a whole lot more automated and easier. We've given our lives, our psychology, um, our personalities over to the market. So if I want to know what the personalities are like of all the voters in Southern Sunderland, I can just go and buy that data and then begin to think about a political campaign that really gets to the heart of those people's deepest fears and concerns. And those things drive political debate. If you appeal to people's deeper instincts, it, it makes them emotional and it makes them more likely to vote. And that sort of analysis is the sort of thing a company like, say, Cambridge Analytica would be uh, are in the business of. So, there's a, yeah, there's a very interesting YouTube video um, from the CEO of that company uh, talking about how they have 5,000 data points on every American. Um, this was in the run-up to the Trump election. So if you imagine a company that owns 5,000 things about you and can work out with great, great, great precision what of 1,000 adverts would strike emotion in you and make you more likely to vote, um, that's an incredibly powerful tool. Um, it allows politics to be much more surgical. And most of the country, if you look at the US and the election, most of that country didn't matter to them at all. They knew it was going to be a red or a blue state. But in those swing states, they were able to target the 10 or 15,000 people that mattered. And if they convinced them to go red or blue, depending on the, the political party, they could win the election. And my conditioning when you look at swing voters is that it's the centre ground that holds a swing voter. And so I tend to look at what happened in the US and think that there, it was more an awakening of people who otherwise wouldn't have been motivated to vote that tipped it than it was a kind of surgical surgical strike on the swing voter because it felt like the messages that Donald Trump were putting out were anything but moderate. And actually, it tends to be moderate messages that hold the centre ground. So, so how can you square a kind of uh, the Donald Trump approach to outrage with the need to subtly nudge a swing voter in the direction of, uh, of a Republican? I think where things have changed is that, again, through big data, you can really begin to understand the psychological health of a particular part of the world, what they like, what they dislike, what issues matter to them, what brands they like. And all this data, all these... Um, algorithms were built for marketing. So when Coca-Cola makes a new video on featuring Lionel Messi, it knows how many 18 to 24 year olds in Southwest London watch that video through targeted advertising and data collection. But you can use those same tools for politics and they are being used. Today, it's emotion that really drives politics and you're able to understand the emotion of a city or of a country through big data. At the, at the most strategic st scale, you can understand when vast swathes of the population may well be happy or sad. Um, most of the big web, web companies are able to do that now. So if you think about that on a political scale, what that means is you can really understand the issues that drive emotions and people's behavior, understand their deepest fears, 
and in the past politics, you know, from from Tony Blair through to David Cameron, was very much around trying to appeal to everyone and making everyone feel inclusive and everyone being a part of a society. Whereas today, I think, again, through big data, you're able to bring out the people that maybe wouldn't have voted at all. So it's not really that you have to persuade the centre to vote left or right. It's that you bring out the people that don't care about politics anymore because they don't feel any, any emotional attachment. And when you create that emotional attachment, you mobilise people to vote. And I think one thing with Brexit and with the Trump campaign they have in common is they were kind of you know using the emotional drivers to convince people that otherwise wouldn't have voted to come out. It feels like the story about how that happened is much more widely known in America than it is with Brexit. Is that, do you feel like the same process happened in both? Um, I would love to see an interesting kind of analysis of all the people who were involved in both campaigns. That would be a very, very interesting piece of analysis to do to see what was the overlap. Obviously, you mentioned Cambridge Analytica being one, the way in which the the, the you know the uh, campaigns were funded and the messages. I think it's sad in a way that, that Brexit was hijacked by this campaign, which it could have been an objective debate. Um, and a pretty good one but it was seemed to be hijacked by the politics of emotion more than anything and it was successful the question is how do we and can we counter that going forward because we've all poured our personalities online uh, and they're being used by um, to others to to influence us if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Another kind of recent episode where the the hidden world of data, if you like, seems to trip, or at least of cyber, for want of a better word, seems to trip into uh, the public, was with the WannaCry attack. Uh, 
um, which it's since been publicly revealed that North Korea was behind, but that kind of brought the NHS to a standstill for a day, pretty much. Are there other incidents of that type that we're less aware of, kind of where um, state interference is creeping into our lives on a daily basis, either because our state's trying to keep us safe or because another state's trying to have a pop at us? It's a great question, and um, the most interesting uh, way to think about this is imagine if you were the chairman or the CEO of a really big multi-billion pound business and one day you discovered that you were hacked or someone had gone to your systems and stolen your intellectual property. Now, if you went public with that, the news that your company had been hacked and your systems weren't working, your aircraft weren't flying or they'd taken the secret recipe that you used to make your products, what do you think would happen to the share price of that company? Yeah, it would tank. It would, it would tank. And not only that, if you think about the compensation compensation packages of the board of directors at most of these big companies, many of them have huge amounts of equity in those companies. So not only are you sacrificing, you know, damaging your own company, you're also slicing your pay packet in, in half by maybe going public with the news that you've been hacked. So my suspicion is there's a lot of activity going on that isn't spoken about in the press Pub companies do not want to declare publicly that they've you know they've been hacked to protect their share price um and whether it's states or hackers or criminals that are behind these who knows that's the the hardest thing with hacking is uh, attribution um, it's very very hard to say conclusively that north korea was behind WannaCry or um Russia was behind the talk talk hack or this teenager from Shetland was the one who you know hacked into the Pentagon um, it's really really hard to confirm and that really changes the nature of warfare of power of influence of individuals uh, and so on so without bringing too much you know this is a, a, a tech and politics podcast and I don't want to go too kind of international full-on international relations but um, some people would write about the is it the Gerasimov doctrine that that Russia applies is that the right is that the chap yeah Gerasimov yeah. yeah and 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 they would say that actually you know Russia is kind of at, at war with us in a different way at the moment mm-hmm. um, is that do you have a sympathy with that view I think they think about conflict differently to us in the west like my my guess is we think about things in terms of we're either at war or we're at peace and unless we're sending fighter jets and missiles and tanks and cruise missiles over to some other country we're generally at peace whereas i think the russians basically view the whole international arena as a never-ending struggle it's a different way of thinking i'm not sure one's right or one's wrong but they see a never-ending struggle and a need to push back against the U.S. against NATO, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, and one of the ways in which they've been pretty good at uh, using information warfare is obviously in this realm of fake news, of political advertising, disinformation, um, and they were good at it. They've not stopped information warfare since the 40s and 50s. Whereas in the West, we dabbled with it. We were quite good at it for a while, and then in the sort of 60s and 70s, largely speaking, we stopped doing it altogether. Whereas the Russians have had an unbroken line of disinformation warfare departments within the KGB and its successors. When we think about how war affects citizens, and the classic example in Britain is the Blitz, um, but actually then it, it may well be that there are examples of another state managing to affect the day-to-day lives of Britons 
is that something that if we think about if we think about warfare differently is that something that creeps into what a kind of war might be if one broke out now would we see that happening more frequently what's very interesting is if you think about the next conflict that we get involved in in the uk um abroad whether it's you know north korea or some other country it will be really different to any of the last few wars that we fought probably different to any war in history and the reason is is because any country we go to war with will have the ability to strike back in a pretty effective way. Imagine WannaCry times a thousand on the NHS and what that would do to our health service or financial systems, airports and so on. And in a way, other states have the capabilities to affect us in a way that they didn't five or ten years ago. And I'm not sure, you know, that the public consciousness is, is prepared for what the next conflict might be and how that would affect them. I guess that's partly presumably because people understand war in the sense of arms and you know, Britain's a nuclear power. Um, we're known to be re- reasonably ahead of the game militarily, primarily because of links with America. But actually, people can't see how where, where we are vis-a-vis other countries in terms of kind of preparedness for cyber conflict. I, I see your point. Um, is there anything you think that government should be thinking about from that point of view? Yes. Um, I'm often struck that both in government and in the private sector there isn't really any preparedness for uh, an event that the internet would suddenly just go down mm. completely and there are some uh, rumours around influential cybersecurity bloggers saying that people are scoping out probably countries are scoping out how to take down the internet en masse now there's lots of sceptics that say that's an impossible, it could never happen the point is we are critically vulnerable as a country online and I'm not sure the government really has thought through what would happen to this country if for a period of 24 hours, three days, or even a few weeks, that the internet was down and wasn't working? How would we as a society operate? Um, And that's a really important question because we're so vulnerable now, because we're probably one of the most digital societies on earth. So I think that the first thing government should be doing is really thinking through how would we as a society operate and are the things we could think about doing or put in place for that rare low likelihood high impact event and are there things we should think about doing or could put in place thinking at this most basic level if you you know if you work in a business and you think about if the internet was going down would you be able to revert to pen and paper or the postal service could we actually operate could we exchange information using phones and would the phone system be overloaded if the internet went down um these t- types of questions are fairly fundamental and actually relatively easy to, I wouldn't say answer, but at least explore and think what would the obvious solution be just to make us resilient in the event that this this you know crazy scenario would happen. Um, if you think about it from a you know from a corporate perspective as well, if a, if a building burns down, the company could probably survive, um, you know, moving its all its employees out of the building and moving getting a new building. If the company didn't have access to the internet, who knows how long it would last? And that's a really interesting way to think about how much we spend on fire safety vis-a-vis how much we as a country, as companies, as individuals spend on, I suppose, internet resilience, if you will. I I want to talk a little bit about accuracy and truth because uh, it's a theme that's cut through all of the episodes of Government versus the Robots. And it feels to me, you know, you've talked about Russia and disinformation and do you think it's possible for the state to continue to keep a grip on accuracy? It's it's an extremely 
uh, I mean, it's the question of our time, isn't it? And how much should the state be involved? Because the moment the state gets involved in, <clears throat> excuse me, inaccuracy, people will start accusing it of being state propaganda. So it's a very double-edged sword. I think my own feeling on this is that it would appear that journalism as a discipline, traditional investigative journalism of the type that we've been used to for 30, 40, 50, 60 years is dying. It's not being funded. Uh, there's a few examples where it is, but in the most part, our entire you know, business model, the way we consume information is set up to be click friendly, to invite sensationalism and scandal. And um, if you look at the way Donald Trump tweets and talks, is very much designed to get as many clicks and airtime as possible. So I think the one thing government should do is seriously consider are there ways in which it can, you know, resuscitate the investigative journalism community. Think about ways in which, perhaps through regulation or tax, they can they can really bring about, um, you know, a, a new, uh, more objective sector, journalism sector. Uh, it's not easy to do, and again, they could be accused of being. Um, political, so it's a very hard line because if the government funds journalism, then again that that falls down. So the journalism needs to be independent. Um, ownership as well, media ownership is a huge issue. Um, but I think ultimately, the best way to go about it is to encourage smart people to go out there and try and report the truth. And fortunately, there's enough of us out there that are trying to do so. But um, yeah, I think it's an industry that's under threat, and the clickbait world is is taking over. And Neon Century is a is an ethical open source business where 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 do you kind of draw your ethical focus from because i presume it's a world in which well there's a lot of people who are frankly trying to be unethical having worked in intelligence both on the government side and the private sector it's been a frustration of mine that if you think about since really since 9 11 the intelligence community public and private has been dragged to the gutter there's all the scandals through with edward snowden um abu Ghraib. you know every week or every month the christopher Steele thing is uh, this really strange as well um so the, the the sector itself has taken a lot of punches but there's a lot of great people particularly in the public sphere who are obviously trying their best to um, stop terrorist attacks or keep britain kind of ahead of everybody else um the ethical thing comes in because in the past human intelligence would be around managing human sources so it's effectively spying in the old james bond sense uh, but I think that's less and less acceptable these days if you think about the Bribery Act in the UK. Uh, in the US, there's the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And it's very difficult to pay someone for information in a legal way that would stand up to any kind of scrutiny. So where we've come in is to try and really think about providing intelligence through careful analysis of open data. And there's so much of it out there that I think we can answer a lot of the questions that perhaps human spies at cocktail parties could in the past. Cameron, my last question is usually to ask people where they've seen where they've seen others achieve positive change and kind of make a difference in the political sense. But I wonder if I have a slightly different question for you, which is, um, what are the characteristics you've seen of the most effective public service? I would say, in particularly in the intelligence community, if you imagine whether it's you're looking at terrorism, you're looking at Russia or China. These issues evoke passion from people. They, you're, you're, you feel passionate about the topic you're working on. Does that make sense? Um, and it's very hard sometimes. These, these topics can become very politicized, just like politics more generally, um, from, the, from the top down. And I think the most, I suppose, 
the most attractive quality in any public servant, particularly in this space, is around looking and thinking about what is actually in the nation's interests and putting their own personal interests or the interests of their agency um, to one side and thinking, you know, I'm the taxpayers are funding me to think about what's the best way to protect Britain. Um, and sometimes, like all walks of life in every office, in every agency, it's political. There are fights, there are favourites, there are people who come in and out. But trying to remain and focused on what's in the best interest of the country is, I think, an admirable quality. And there's plenty of people who've you know, made a career out of, of doing that. So um, I have a lot of respect for them. Thanks. Cameron, I know you nearly got uh, sidelined by the prospect of buying yourself an old Fiat on the way up here. Uh, but thanks very much for making the journey. It's been great to have you in. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jonathan. Cheers. Well, another episode in which the future consequences of technology seem more disturbing than they do exciting. As ever, I'm keen to hear from listeners about ideas for topics I should cover. You can find us on Twitter at govt underscore vs underscore robots. Thanks to Cecilia Armstrong for her help editing and producing this podcast. And we'll see you again next time when we'll more than likely be taking a closer look at political advertising. 